This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I'm Katherine Nichols, here with poet, essayist, and author Elisa Gabbert, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. Welcome to our second season. This episode, our year is 1989, and our book is Remember Me by Christopher Pike. We also read uh, Fall Into Darkness, also by Christopher Pike, because, um, just for fun. Uh, Remember Me is about a teenage girl, Sherry Cooper, who fell to her death at her friend's sleepover party. Uh, She believes that she was murdered. Um, from the afterlife, she enters the dreams of the people who were at the party and does other ghostly things to figure out who killed her and why. And the answer is complicated, and it involves the fact that she was the child of a woman who was having an affair with her sister's husband, and the sister um, switched the babies at birth, so Shari grew up in a family that she was not genetically related to. Uh, and then there's this other girl who is genetically related to her family. It's complicated. Um, but it all makes sense in the book. Um, And then Fall Into Darkness is about another teenage girl called Anne Rice, who is obsessed with faking her own death and framing her best friend for the the murder um, to get back at the friend for what she believes is um, that she caused Anne's brother's suicide. And that plot um, has a lot of twists and turns. It turns out that there is a murderer who actually killed the brother and is obsessed with Anne and kind of causes Anne's death and Anyway, the friend gets away. It it works out. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, here's our conversation. Elisa, I'm so excited to be back. I'm so excited that we're doing this, and I'm so excited that we're choosing Christopher Pike for our big back-to-school podcast episode Um, so we can talk about uh, high schoolers and high school. Yes, I... I am so excited to be here. I am so excited you were willing to read these books (laughs) and talk about them with me. They took me right back to um, the bedroom of my youth. And this is something I want to get into, but just I I pictured all the exact same scenes that I pictured the first time I read them when I was 15 or whatever. Um, You know, remember me took place in my real world high school best friend's house (laughs) as far as I'm concerned and Uh that's exactly where I pictured it the second time that I read it um that's that's fascinating because I found his descriptions to be so vivid that it was one of the very few times that I didn't just put my imagined plot movie into a house that I knew it it felt like I it actually generated a house in my mind when you were a kid, did you use your own house or somebody else's house more often? My friend Phaedra's house most often. <sighs> Phaedra, See, if I... you're out there, if you're listening to this, I've been <laughs> using your house for a really long time as like the site of plots. <laughs> My friend Marissa had um, like 
it was almost famous in the city I grew up in. Just it was just like a really big, beautiful house, uh-huh. <laughs> and and it was really like cool. Like she had this big playroom. They converted their original garage into a playroom and built like another garage. Um, it was it was an awesome house. And whenever I read a book with, um, you know, quote unquote, well off characters, you know, that, that like euphemism for being like stinking having stinking wealth <laughs> yes yeah. I I always pictured it in her house and it always worked perfectly and it worked especially well for this book because you know how Sherry describes having like an kind of an upstairs hallway slash balcony thing where you could look over or, and call down into the living area yeah yeah her house was exactly like that and that was such a um it was it was like before that became like an architectural trope in every new house. Right. It seemed like such an expensive thing to do to have a bathroom oh, yeah. inside your house. Oh, such luxury. Um, like a double staircase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like having a shelf with all the American girl dolls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this book, I thought, remember me. So remember me is the one I'm talking about right now because I did not, quite feel the same way about fall into darkness i was trying to think of how many times i'd ever encountered sort of 80s teenage tropes being played this straight and this sensitively Mm -hmm. um just the idea that you would have this super hot rich girl who is not that serious about life uh, and that she's like given a ferrari right for her 18th (laughs) birthday she uses it to uh, drive to high school, but she has to <laughs> she has to carpool with her super hot boyfriend, so she can't drive in the Ferrari. Whatever it's you know, it's like this kind of thing, and you're like, how could this not be the villain? How could this <laughs> not be a person that the book on some level wants us to hate, or just consider her shallow, or that she needs to be taught a lesson? I mean, it's like even in Jane Austen's time, the idea that there is like a hot girl who's just allowed to exist and be full of herself. Like Jane Austen said, like everyone is going to hate Emma. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah, is so innocent about how much it loves Sherry mm. and just how much it allows her to just be that person and have dignity as a kind of shallow, hot, 18 year old who has to solve her own murder. Yeah. Um, And I like, as you say, she's not that serious about life. She's not like, you know, top of her class or um, hoping to become a, like a famous actress or anything. She's just like, aside from being rich and hot, she's like pretty average for a rich hot girl. Yeah. Yeah. You know, okay. Um, so I was going to say Ferris Bueller's day off is one of the only other things I could think of that was just like, isn't it great to be hot and rich? Like <laughs> there's no layers beyond it than that. But, the, but there is a difference because Ferris Bueller is extraordinary because he's always like three steps ahead of everyone. But Sherry right. isn't like that. Like Sherry's just kind of just like a regular girl. She is regular and it is like very touching um, that, you know, the sort of worldview of this book is like, but her life matters too. (laughs) And and not just even in some grand scheme, but like 
most importantly, her life mattered to herself. (laughs) And that's kind of the perspective we're getting um, once she, I mean, she's, she's dead for the entire book, right? Like when, when we meet her, she's dead. Is that not true? I think yes, because she's going back in time telling about um, the day she died. Yeah. Yes. Um, So yeah, it's like, (laughs) of course, um, of course her life matters to her, you know, and, but because she's the star of this book, it matters to us too. And yeah, I I find that sweet that the gamut of the book is not that we're supposed to care about her and her life because, you know, whatever, she's a genius and she was going to be a doctor or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree that it's, it's like, it's not because she's rich and hot and it's not in spite of the fact that she's rich and hot. It's Mm -hmm. just like a very pure childlike version of human dignity that just is so unworldly. Yeah, it's like I'm sure you'll enjoy imagining a good-looking person. So we'll we'll describe a good-look, you know, a character will be good-looking, but otherwise, it's like there's really no difference between her dignity and anyone else's in the story. And yeah, I'm sure we'll end up referring to this many times, and we should include a link in the show notes. But that interview I sent you in Electric Literature, where um, a woman who was a big Christopher Pike fan as a teenager, tracked him down and um, talked to like his real name, I guess is Kevin McBadden. She called mm-hmm. him on the phone and they, they talked recently. This interview was published in like 2018 or something. Um, and this is really great interview. I love it. And, you know, one of the insights that he revealed was that like the characters are always hot, rich girls or yeah. <laughs> yeah. almost always hot, rich girls in part because his publishers were like, well, look, you have, you know, broad freedom as an author. You can basically do whatever you want, but your books have to sell a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was like part of the formula at the time for these team bestsellers was that, you know, the, the, the stars of the books were rich hot people. Um, well, and he and, actually you know, usually rich, hot, white, to... white people. Exactly. And that he had sort of tried to make them more racially diverse, but the publishers were kind of like, uh, maybe make them blonde, please. And then he like, <laughs> didn't push back against that as hard as he wished that he had. And he kind of like, yeah, I did say he that. regretted that a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there, I mean, there's, I, that's really still very true. There's still like wealth porn and, um, you know, like quote unquote chiclet bestseller type literature is still alive and well. And, and not to disparage women at all, because I feel like that is also the formula for like slick um, Hollywood action movies that are primarily directed at men, like oh, yeah. James Bond, <laughs> um, Christopher Nolan movies. Like there, it, there's always the plots are always sort of being excused to show beautiful people in really nice suits um in expensive cities you know traveling on jets yeah. <laughs> eating in the world's most glamorous restaurants like um people that yeah the, the formula still works people still really like to read and watch <laughs> read about and watch rich people I agree with you I think that I think that the surprising thing to me when I was reading remember me was um just how how much he invested in her interior life and just mm-hmm. how direct and emotionally vulnerable that book is. It's like, she's so sad about being dead. 
And like, <laughs> she's so grossed out by the sight of her own corpse and like the sight of her own grave and stuff like that. Like it's, I was like, this is a really powerful book about death in a way that I was yeah. not expecting. Like, I was like, oh, you really go there. Like you, there's nothing that he looks away from mm-hmm. or has any kind of like cynical remove which i would say is absolutely the character of you know james bond or 50 shades of gray like whatever like wealth porn thing there's a distancing element of all of that wealth Mm -hmm. it it isn't just like a childlike outpouring of sort of humanity yeah inside the characters yeah, sorry. One of one of the few scenes that I really remembered, and it's been interesting to me to think about, like what, how much of this book do I remember? Because as I mentioned, I, I think I read it more than once, but I was like 15, um, and now I'm in my 40s. It's a long time ago, and there were a few specific things I remembered. Um, again, I kind of could picture the places where I pictured the plot happening in a lot of ways. Um, I remember the last sentence of the novel, just absolutely word for word. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. You want to say yeah. that? So that um, everyone else yeah. can it too. Yeah. The last sentence is, I want to read it so I don't get it wrong. Mm-hmm. I have my copy right next to me. You don't absolutely I, remember it word for word. I do. I do. But I want to, you know, this is recorded for posterity. I want people to remember me. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. it. I want people to remember me. Um, I just always remember that. And um I remember that scene where I think it's their driving back from the morgue, but she's in her brother's car mm-hmm. and he has to like pull over and break down crying. Yeah. Um, because, you know, he's just confronting the fact that his sister is really gone. Um, and then she starts crying too, because she kind of realizes, oh yeah, I'm really dead. Um so that was powerful to me. I think the sibling relationships and and remember remember me and fall into darkness are yeah a, a really it's sweet how like primary those relationships are like almost more than um, the romantic ones yeah exactly yeah yeah and the the weights of the sibling relationships and the best friend relationships and then the romantic relationships are almost the lightest which I think Mm -hmm. seems really true to at least my experience of being a teenager that whoever you're dating is maybe just somebody that you met a few months ago. It's not necessarily like the same sort of powerful, important relationship as like your best friend or. Oh yeah. Oh God. I I think about, um, I think about my, my best friends in high school so much more than I think about the guy that I, that I dated like during my junior and senior year. Yeah. So much more. (laughs) Her attitude, Shari's attitude toward her boyfriend, um, which is kind of ambivalent and like, maybe he's cheating on her in the hot tub and she's like, it's sort of a possessive feeling. Like you don't get to treat me like that kind of feeling as opposed to the level of intimacy she has with her best friend's mind. So that when she goes into her best friend's dreams, it's like a world of symbols that she can read. Yes. Which and is just fall into darkness. Intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. It has a, a really similar kind of setup and that um, the sibling relationships and the kind of oldest friends, best friends, those relationships have this 
this longevity and this depth. It's like there's this sense of them being able to read each other's minds. Well, and reading um, the, the symbol of the dropped ring, like knowing the meaning of the dropped ring, right? Right. At the end. Yeah. 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 I had forgotten all about that. Um, and Paul is a, like Paul and Fall into Darkness is a lot like. Oh, what is his name? And remember me that the, the hunky boyfriend that kind of doesn't matter. I, I can picture him in my mind, but I have to look what his name is. Hang on. <laughs> really, there's a lot of like very basic names in these in these books. Hang on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's Dan. Daniel Dan. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, um, it, but yeah, he, that's probably right. Uh, Daniel and Paul are both like you know. Their, their value is kind of hunkiness and then they're they can't completely be trusted like <laughs> exactly exactly like like they're basically himbos <laughs> and not that important in the world of these books yeah they're very easily murder suspects <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and uh yeah the level of betrayal at thinking that your best friend could be a murder suspect is on a different level of, and I don't even think that the siblings are even considered as murder suspects. Right. So that, that's something I wanted to ask you about. So you, you read these books for the actual first time. This was the first time. Yeah. Yeah. So again, for me, I forgot so much. I couldn't really remember the plots or like who the, you know, the actual, um, the killer was an, in either case initially, but like, as I was being reintroduced to the characters, there would be this like aura of evil around certain characters where I was like, Ooh, I, I really have a bad feeling about Amanda. Interesting. <laughs> and like, Oh, I really have a bad feeling about Chad. But so that was clearly just my, well, I don't know if it's clear or not. Like, is that, was that my memory? Or did you pick up on that too? Like there was foreshadowing around them. Well, okay. So this is part of my difficulty reading. Remember, I read Remember Me first of these two. And mm -hmm. it was difficult for me to take at face value just how much I was being told about these characters. <laughs> uh, I was like, surely there has to be some reversal such that the blonde rich girl isn't just like good and fine and has is like completely trustworthy uh narrator of her own experience and the gothy dark-haired housekeeper's daughter is <laughs> bad <laughs> um like that seemed i was like i i can't read that right it's like not but then it's a double reversal process. right when it's like forcing you to expect a reversal that then is never satisfied yeah exactly <laughs> um so that was a little it, it's like the book taught me to read it you uh -huh. know and having read it I now understand sort of what it's for like what is its emotional range what is the way that it would do foreshadowing what is the way that it would, um, like, what's the point of reading these books? You know, like, I don't <laughs> yeah. mean that in a mean way, but it, like, it's like, what is the point? Do you think? I thought that the you, point was part was of point? it's just like humaneness, 
you know, of, mm-hmm. of reading like a really well plotted story. And I found those characters to be very, very embodied. Like I knew all of them. I understood exactly who they all were and what their uh, relationships to one another and like everything that happened at the sleepover. It's like he just goes through every single thing that happens at the sleepover and it is exciting and you feel rising tension at the idea that this is a sleepover and these are the games they played and this is the number of people that were in the room for each of these games and things like that. Mm-hmm. And like that, that is so difficult to imagine pulling off as a writer to actually just describe a bunch of teenagers at a sleepover and make it that interesting in, in the level of detail that he does. And so I think that it's like, that's the point of reading the books to my mind is just how much these characters matter to him and how sort of sincere he is about the whole project. Mm -hmm. But it's not the kind of book that would like try to make you think that the shifty character is not shifty. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's not going to hide the killer too carefully. Well, but I, I mean, I thought that Chad was pretty well hidden and fall into darkness by, you know, seeming so nice. But I don't know. Again, like I, it's it's I can't I can't really get into a headset where I know what that would feel like if I hadn't read it 20 years ago, 25 years ago, whenever I read it. Um, but, yeah, I I was a little nervous um, that it would feel like a cheap cheapening cheapened experience reading it again. And I was so happy when you said that you were enjoying it. And then when I started it, I was like, so relieved that I really liked it. And it's like, it's just, I mean, I don't allow myself to read just, just true trash all that often. (laughs) And I just found it like delicious, you know, like I just, I like, I loved reading it like as fast as possible, you know, and like you, I loved all the level of detail of just recreating every moment at the birthday party when they're doing this weird little seance. I loved that. And I I love the level of detail in Fall into Darkness of like every second passing after Anne Rice, who again is the beautiful rich girl who tries to frame her best friend for her own murder after she jumps off a cliff with a rope attached to a boulder. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And just the like, oh, she realized she was going to smash back into the the cliff face. And um, yeah, the, just the second by second kind of reconstruction of events is, was so pleasurable. I agree. I I mean, I think this is where we differ because I just completely fell in love with Remember Me and then I started reading Fall Into Darkness and I was like, eh, like none of it ever jumped off the page for me. It felt the way that it's like if I had a stereotype of of these books before I started reading them, it was closer to how I felt about Fall Into Darkness, which is kind of like a bunch of things happen that all seem a little far-fetched and he does definitely ground them in detail but they never quite mattered to me. And the characters felt like they, like they weren't at sleepovers. They were in a bunch of landscapes, like a courtroom where I was kind of like, okay, I can imagine a courtroom, but it feels kind of generic. And 
I don't know. It was somehow. Yeah, I, I just, I, I love a courtroom, courtroom drama. I'm like a complete sucker for it. So that might partly be where we differ, but I think yeah. the real way we differ here, and this is, this is where I will make a case for it being like, to me, as enjoyable as Remember Me on some level. I do think Remember Me is like you say, like pretty dang sincere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, a Fallen into Darkness feels more campy to me. And what it reminds me of, I'm going to bring up James Bond again. Have you ever seen the movie Moonraker? No. Oh my God. I I want everybody I know to watch Moonraker. It blew my mind. It's from the seventies. So we could, we could legitimately do an episode about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's like, I don't know why Moonmaker decided to be this kind of movie, but it's like, it's like a spoof. Like the reason it blew my mind is because, you know, there's, there have since been, you know, full on spoofs of James Bond, you know, like um, Austin the Powers, Austin Powers yeah. movies. Um, but it like, it completely predates that. Like it's spoofed itself before anybody else could spoof it, but it's like, half spoof and half sense like it still totally works as a James Bond movie because James Bond movies were already kind of winking you know yeah it just like it just really leans in to the winking and it's really ridiculous like it feels in a lot of ways like watching like space balls or airplane like just a full-on spoof yeah. but it's still like it's an actual James Bond movie <laughs> yeah. um yeah and I love it it's amazing they go to space it's <laughs> Fucking amazing! There's it, they're they're in Venice, but then also later space. It's so great. Well, but anyway, so space in Fall into <laughs> Darkness. Unfortunately, they don't. Maybe I would like it better if they did. But I just want to point out like the couple of moments where I got the like campy Moonraker vibes. Sure. Um, so the first the first part where and unfortunately I couldn't find this book. Oh, that's a whole other story. I Fall into Darkness is not in print, remember me as, and I tried so many times to get it. I ordered it through like interlibrary loan and it, it was approved, but then later it was canceled because they probably discovered it was lost or stolen. Yeah. Um, I tried to order a copy through Amazon. And when it finally showed up, it was not Fall into Darkness. It was some other Christopher Pike book. I am developing a conspiracy theory right now, as you're describing this, about a group <laughs> of Fall into Darkness um, hardcore fans and they call themselves <laughs> something like The Fallen, maybe, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something like that. The only way I could read it was I found a copy online through this site, like an internet archive site that allows you to quote unquote borrow a book um, and read it like online. Um, it was, it was like the same kind of cheap paperback trade paperback copy I read as a kid, but clearly someone had just scanned. Um, and I could only borrow it for an hour at a time because there's only one copy even on the internet. (laughs) And so I, I was reading it like, um, it was either Friday night or Saturday night. I was reading it. It was Friday night. Um, just like, you know, hunched over my laptop and after an hour would go by, it would kick me out and I would have to borrow it again because apparently nobody else in the world was trying to read it at that same moment. I um, should protect the copy that I have. I just, I ordered a used copy and it arrived. Um, but it sounds like there could be like some kind of like gang of fall into darkness obsessives that are like mm-hmm. out to get me now to track down every last copy and destroy it. Well, so it, it was the part 
um, it was the part where it's Annis hanging by this rope off the cliff still. And she's already smashed into the cliff face because she took a running jump and that was a miscalculation. And she ended up swinging back into the cliff um, and catching all the force on her right elbow and breaking her arm. And is talking about how this totally hoses her plan (laughs) because she really needs both her hands to like switch from the first rope to the second rope. That's going to get her all the way to the bottom of this 500 foot cliff. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, after we've sort of gone into detail about how, you know, like she also smashed her head and her head's bleeding and she can't really feel anything in her right arm. Um, And then it's like, she figured out something she could do. She she just needed one good hand, but luckily <laughs> Anne was left-handed. <laughs> and like <laughs> that like late reveal, I, I was just like in my mind, like, ha, 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 you know, in all caps. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious. And that was like a real Moonraker moment for me. Um, yeah I think you're describing the same thing that I didn't like but you're saying just like that that you did like it (laughs) which was Mm -hmm. like in the thing that is wrong with Anne and uh Sharon in that like the the thing hmm, all of the tensions among all of the characters that have tension are all upset with each other for either like being obsessive and obsessed with the wrong thing or the the hatred between Anne and Sharon is like a, an obsession and the plan this like really extreme plan to frame the best friend for murder is the result of obsession and that turns out it's actually Chad who's like planting this idea and he has this obsession and um I think it's a re- it's the opposite of the thing that seems so tender in remember me which is just that she's just this regular girl who's nothing special but I think that that's I think that Pike seems really suspicious of obsessive people. Mm. Like it seems like an untrustworthy characteristic where I think it's really easy for him to sink into the mind of sort of a like mellow person who's just kind of doing their best. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, another kind of interesting difference between the novels is that remember me is in the first person it's told in, in the voice of, of dead Sherry um, and fall into darkness is third person. And there's this kind of, <laughs> there's this kind of silly device that he uses that I, I wondered a lot about where it's like, occasionally the character's thoughts will be like in italics, <laughs> you know, like those yeah. are their, their word for word thoughts and I kind of I caught myself wondering like is this Pike like trying to do free and direct for beginners or something like he thinks kids won't understand <laughs> where the thoughts are coming from if it's not super signposted um now we or is know that I just like he doesn't know how to do free and direct <laughs> I, don't, I couldn't decide now we know that you have thoughts like all caps ha ha ha, ha, ha. <laughs> maybe they're actually thinking in italics yeah they could be they could be um so I wanted to talk about the dreams in remember me because mm. one of the things that really leapt out at me about that book that seemed very dated to the 1980s in a way Uh was um it seemed really freudian to me like the amount of faith that the characters and the narrative itself have 
in um, in dreams and in symbols that come from dreams, and yeah. the idea that there's some underlying knowledge that that they don't quite have access to as conscious people, but that their dreams sort of tell them things. I just can't imagine a YA book being written. I mean, it, maybe it would be about astrology or something now, <laughs> but it just seems so like nakedly Freudian. And part of it is like the, I mean, I hope that it's okay if we spoil this readers, but uh, yeah. listeners. Uh, so it turns out that the the family relationships in Remember Me are not what they appear to be, that two of the kids were switched at birth. So uh, people are siblings and parent-child relationships are not what they think they are genetically versus socially. Um, so there's sort of something to discover that people subconsciously know, but then they don't like actually know. Uh, but there's an emotional truth that's not the same as the official truth. I mean, obviously Star Wars is kind of like the classic example of that happening in popular fiction. Huh. And that is, you know, that predates these books. So I, I have a thought about that, you know, that, I don't know if I would even call it a trope, but just that mode of like trust in dreams. Yeah, tell me. Um, it, rem- it reminds me, like, I sort of wonder if that's like an actual, you know, belief system that the book has versus just like, this is something that we kind of have to agree upon and make it work. And the, the parallel situation that I'm thinking of is this idea in any kind of, you know, book or play or movie. Um, I, I do want to talk about our town a little bit at some point um, sure. where, where like the dead are among the living. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, we have to agree for the sake of this being like acceptable art. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that like the dead are only going to see their loved ones doing things that they can like accept seeing them doing. Like they're not going to watch them in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Well, there <laughs> is actually, off. So there is a part where. Um, the, right. There's the shower thing. Or the shower thing. Yeah. Where the ghost looks at. Right. So whatever, there's, yeah. yeah, there's, there's a winking nod to that there, but like, I mean, this is something that my entire, like ever since I was a kid, it has troubled me and movies were like, there's ghosts among the living or like, or even actually just the whole idea that like, you know, people tell their kids when their grandparents die, like, oh, well, they're going to be watching over you. Yeah. Didn't that like, give you the chills as a kid? Cause it's like, I don't want my grandmother watching me. hundred percent. Not how my family talked about things. <laughs> so oh, that's like, good. Oh, maybe your grandma's watching over you. Um, no, I, I don't think that my parents told me that specifically. I've just, I just heard other people say things like that. And it always was like, Ugh, like no thank you you know I like I yeah. prefer not to think that my grandparents are watching me um but yeah so like that it just <laughs> there's something uh analogous there to me and like sort of agreeing like um like like what the dead sea is going to be significant <laughs> yeah. and like and dreams are going to be significant because like well, how, yeah, how boring would it be if we went into somebody's head and they were and it was completely random? Well, I agree, but I think that the dreams are a lot more, it's a lot more like, here's a symbol that you're not going to understand how to read until later. 
And then once you do know how to read this symbol, you'll go back and understand that it was in this dream. And it's like even the, the crux of what actually happens in Remember Me, it like the dream that the brother has before Shari dies tells her how to handle a situation later where there's like a, a bubble of air in his heart and it could mm-hmm. like cause him to die. And she understands how to manipulate this, like how to actually physically go into his heart as a ghost and save his life um, because she remembers the dream that he told her about. So it's like they have a lot more causal effect than they have to have just to make the story work. That's my feeling about about Remember Me is like it's it's well, like you know like I just read a, plot elements. I just read a book um, where there was a lot of import placed upon like a vision or, or actually a couple of visions. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess I, th- I think that's still a thing that people get a lot of mileage out of in literature is like, you know, yeah. the interp- essentially the interpretation of dreams. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually, I don't want to make a, a claim that's too strong because I think, like, I think it's in- incorrect. You know, it's not even uh-huh. defend it. I think it's actually false. Um <laughs> About like, I don't think that nobody puts dreams into books anymore. I thought that this specific book had like the specific dream, like the way that it worked and the mm-hmm. way that a lot of this, this feeling of like, what what is there to discover about yourself after you're dead? Um, what can you still learn and how do you still grow? Which is a lot of what she's doing after she's dead. Oh, this is just one more thing I loved about it is I love how she's so disobedient. It's like, these are the rules of being dead. And she's like, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what happens when you're rich. <laughs> like, yes. The rules do not apply. I, it, she did. I didn't even think that she was being sold as like an unusually plucky or headstrong character. It was more like she just didn't like do what she was told even as a dead person um yeah which, well, so wait have you fun to read okay, about. I the larger thing i was gonna say was it felt freudian in a in a very specific way where it's like you don't know what kind of person you are other people mm-hmm. tell you or you have to discover through sort of difficult work that's like therapy style work or analysis style work to figure out what's going on with you but you mm-hmm. don't actually know the truth about your own fundamental relationships. Um, and that I was thinking that that's the thing that felt dated to an earlier time. That There's like this joke where she doesn't even know what color her eyes are. Her brother's like telling her like, no, your eyes are brown. She's like, no, my eyes are green. And it sort of played for a joke, the idea that she could even self-identify her own eye color. And I was just thinking, I think that like being the person who tells others who you are has become such a bigger part of like adolescence. Like you get to say what your sexuality is. You get to like say what your name is. If you know, like, let's say you're trans, it's like, it's disrespectful to, um, you know, call somebody by the wrong name, which it obviously always was disrespectful. But I think that there was way more of an idea in the eighties and nineties to the you know degree that I remember, uh, it was way more of an idea of like uh, like you can't pull that outfit off. 
Like you weren't <laughs> supposed to be able to say what kind of person you are. Other people tell you what kind of person you are and like what you're allowed to get away with. Do you know what I mean? It. I think that there's oh, like yeah. a cultural shift around this. Like we've talked about the word conceited and how nobody uses the word. Right. Nobody anymore. says that anymore. Because it's like actually a character virtue now to consider yourself like, oh, I'm hot. I'm beautiful. But we're all supposed to be conceited. It's not <laughs> an insult anymore. It's like you're supposed to self-identify as having all of these various qualities. But that didn't used to be true at all. I know. And I'm really, that's one of those things I'm really curious if it will, if it's actually like the kind of change that stays changed or if, this if it's is, a weird ahistorical blip and things will go back to the way they have been for a very long time, um, which was more people didn't trust their self-opinions. Yeah. Um, or at least we were not supposed to trust them publicly, even if you internally thought like, well, I know I'm hot. Yeah. <laughs> you, were, yeah. you were not supposed to reveal that. Um, the Freudian, coming back to the Freudian point, um, it, it feels like the unconscious is like important to Christopher Pike's project. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. In a way, like, I mean, there's a lot of that kind of like people knowing things without knowing they know them until some moment of revelation in, in both of these books. Um, and like, I love in that, again, in that interview in electric literature, he said that he, he felt like this book came to him in like a Kublai Khan type, but not that it came to him in a dream, but it was one of those things where it was like, it, it felt like it was delivered to him whole, like he wasn't really writing it. Like it was almost like he was just transcribing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, which that's I, 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 I kind of cut first person. I know. And he, he swears that like he had, after he typed that last sentence that I remembered word for word for 25 years, he swears that he like had an experience, like a spirit had just left the room or just like it whispered something to him, like, see you later or, or something, yeah. <laughs> something like that. But that he felt like it came from the beyond as opposed to from himself, which is, um, I mean, the way like a neuroscientist would explain that is that like you're, it came almost entirely from your subconscious and your conscious mind has had no awareness of doing any of the work. Yeah. I think that the, the amount that he externalizes various parts of her mind, like there's like the shadow and, you know, Uh um, in, in remember me in particular, it does feel like coming up with a coherent understanding of the afterlife and of how, like a, a model of how Shari's mind works. Um, that that's a huge part of his project and a huge part of, I mean, I think that's true through all of his books. I think that he mm-hmm. just spends a lot of time thinking about like, how do people work? <laughs> Like, I guess right. <laughs> um, it's like a, a psychological writer, even beyond my feeling that it's psychological in a Freudian way. Um, I think that he also, it's like mystical. And apparently oh, yeah. people were upset when it was released. People didn't want uh, teenagers to read it because they thought that it showed such a um, kind of chill and okay version of the afterlife that they would all kill themselves ah 
Um, <laughs> so I, I, I keep wanting to mention Our Town. Have you read or seen a production of Our Town? I have not. I've read a lot about Wilder. it. I've read about yeah. it, but I have not seen um, it. So there, there was a line in Remember Me that made me think of Our Town. And I, I when I was just like flipping through it this weekend, kind of making some notes, um, I saw that I had underlined this line. It's on page 50 of like the new edition of Remember Me. Um, it's pretty early on in the book. Um, and Sherry says, the living really have only one point of view, their own. Oh, there are wise men here and there on earth who can see things as others do, but they are rare. Um, and there's a line in our town that is almost exactly like that. And it goes on. Um, okay. So Emily is the character in our town who, who dies and then, um, goes back to like to visit her family from the other side. Um, and she says, live people don't understand, do they? And then Mrs. Gibbs, who was also dead and was her mother-in-law says, no, dear, not very much. Um, and then later after she goes um, against, everyone is advising her against it. So it's, it's very much like how her Sherry's dead guide and remember me kind of advises her against like interacting with the living. Yeah. yeah. Um, all the dead in our town do that too. They're like, it's not, no, you're not going to like it. Don't do it. We really advise against it, but she does it anyway. Um, and so, and then it's like horrible. She hates it. Yeah. <laughs> and so she's talking to the stage manager in the play and she says, do any human beings ever realize life while they live it every, every minute. And the stage manager says, no, saints and poets, maybe they do some. Um, so that just felt like a real intentional echo there to me that like, oh, there are wise men here and there and saints and poets, maybe. Yeah. Um, I, I just I wondered if that was intentional because I was kind of just trying to find like forebears for this whole trope of of ghosts among the living and kind of revisiting the scenes of their life. Yeah, you mentioned passed. when we were talking before. You mentioned uh, the movie Ghost also as having right, a yeah. very similar cosmology. Yeah, and that came out in 1990, which is so it's right after Remember yeah. Me. Um, but yeah, they have a lot of similar tropes, which you know I'm sure they all kind of go back to some or or text. Um, but yeah, I've I've been kind of trying to trace that. You know, of course, there's like. Um, the Christmas Carol and uh, everything based on that, you know? Yeah. I mean, um, I think that that this seems like it, it, there's a much more like new agey feeling about this. Scrooge kind of visits his life and watches it almost like a play. Like he's in the audience. Mm -hmm. And I, Sherry is in like a spirit world with competition of forces of, you know, destruction and creation and and stuff mm -hmm. like that yeah just the the degree of um dream symbols and the feeling that like maybe she could trap her best friend's consciousness inside a crystal ball and stuff like that mm -hmm. trying to make it as different as possible from living experience while mm -hmm. still feeling it felt like more it's like sci-fi or new age mm -hmm. you know like it wasn't like trying to make something that is very, very legible as a human experience. Right. Right. Ugh. You mean like the fact that she can, you know, fly and 
It's, it is actually, I mean, I, I didn't think of this until today when I sort of revisited and I, I like skim read the play and I watched parts of this 1977 TV production of our town, but um, it's very similar. And in a lot of ways to that, because when Emily is dead, she just sort of realizes like, Oh, well, what happens is she kind of remembers the farm that she lived on and her baby. She, the idea is that she dies in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said like, Oh, for, for a moment I was back there. Like I had my baby on my lap and um, I was at the farm. And then she comes back to, she's like sitting among all the other dead of the town at the graveyard. She's basically just watched her own funeral and she's like, I could go back, couldn't I? I could just go back wherever, whenever I wanted and like relive all my days. And they say, well, yes, but you shouldn't do it. It's It won't be what you think it'll be like. You'll regret it. We really advise against it, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And she's like, mm, no, <laughs> it's very much like, um, like Sherry. She's like, nah, I'm really going to do it though. I'm going to do it. Um, she, like, she just has her heart set on it. She decides to do it. And there she is. She like picks a day. She picks her birthday from when she's 12, which is um, a Tuesday in 1899. And she goes back and like watches her mother making her breakfast and calling her down to open her presents and stuff. And it's like too much for her. Totally destroys her. Um, but That's yeah, it's that. <laughs> well, I was just yeah. thinking about like the, the forces. It's like, yes, Sherry can fly, but she actually cannot fly she's told that she will be able to fly once she kind of gives up her fear of just the feeling that you should not be able to fly. Like that it's like, she has these limits inside her mind. Yeah. What she thinks she should be able to do and what she shouldn't. And that that's what prevents her from kind of embracing her deadness, mm-hmm. which um, it feels like something that could happen at the same time as like the self-esteem movement. Right. It's like a, you know, <laughs> yeah. like what kind of growth does a dead person have to have? It's like, they have to have like more self-esteem essentially, <laughs> um, which is not really quite what you're describing from our town in a, in a way it's a little cheaper than I think. What you're well, in, um, like the, so in our town and also in the movie ghost, um, which, you know, it's, it's fucking corny, but um I saw it many times when I was in junior high. I'm not sure like we around the same time. Patrick Swayze corny. I don't think that that's where we are as a society, right? <laughs> he, no, he can do no wrong. Um, <laughs> the movie itself, a little corny, but the, there, in all of these <laughs> fine, fine works of art, <laughs> there's there's this sense that like right over you, pa- after you pass over, there's this resistance or like an inability to really accept that you're not still a human and not still alive. And so like your spirit is is still in its human form you're still wearing the clothes you wore when you died like that's true in ghosts too yeah um and that's true in well no actually i don't know if that's true in our town or not that probably pretends on uh, depends on how the director decides to do it um but so you're so you're there you're wearing that same outfit you're moving among the living in your body and and like, remember me in ghosts, there's, there's this idea that like, oh, the only reason you can like sit on a chair is because you completely expect to be able to sit on a chair, but like, you're not actually in contact with the chair because you don't have a body anymore. <laughs> and you have to like rewire your, your mind to like, understand that you don't follow the kind of same laws of 
physics as a living human anymore. (laughs) I think that exact idea that there's some duty that we have to rewire our expectations or our minds outside of the expectations that we're accustomed to, that we have to change something so deep about our minds that we can't even feel it as a thought. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that shows up in a lot of 19th century ghost stories. Like that feels like a a post-Freud idea, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know because I'm not super well-versed in um, the kind of history of ghost stories. I try, I tried to get uh, a little more well-versed over the past like three days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I failed, but I, I do think a lot of that influence in Pike is like Buddhist. Interesting. Um, because That's a good it, well, point. Cause it is a religious idea. Right. And there's, I mean, you see this in Salinger too. If, um, yeah. if you read any of Salinger's stories, this idea it's that like, I've read, sorry. <laughs> ah, um, like that if you like, duh, just get enlightened. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like even when you're alive, like you'll be able to like float, um, or just, you know, bend a spoon with your, with your mind. Um, which you know, is a little bit of like, you know, that that's a, a sort of warped version of what like basic Buddhism is, but you know, you, you do, when you read about Buddhism here about like, Oh yeah, there's like these yogis that can like float above mountains because they're so enlightened. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I'm sure that is the equivalent of Buddhist urban legend, but. <laughs> well, there are, I mean, there are like saint stories and Catholicism that are also like, Right. You could achieve a degree of holiness where sort of the laws of physics no longer apply. Exactly. And we know that um, Kevin McFadden slash Christopher Pike does like transcendental meditation. And, you know, there's there's the sense that like you are training your mind to basically leave your body. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, did you want to talk at all about the the kind of that thing that I know you appreciate in like children's books where the parents are absent so that the kids have like kind of total autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. I did think that that was an interesting element where, and I think that that's very typical of anything that takes a teenage perspective seriously is that the teenagers are almost the parents to the parents that they have this feeling of obligation toward the parents and like that they have to look after them but there's definitely not a sense that the parents are controlling the teenager or their life in a meaningful way, which is probably rare for actual teenagers. I mean, maybe that's not actually rare for actual teenagers. There's probably all kinds of parents out there. I just mean. Yeah. I I noticed that he also tends to, make his characters like 18 or even older. Um, yeah. So it's even more kind of, you know, not, not that these books are like designed to be capital P plausible, <laughs> but it's like a little more plausible that they would be like pretty in control of their own time and their own environments. Yeah. There's definitely not a sense that the parents are like a meaningful force in their lives other than just by being family members. Right. They're not more significant than, um, and I'm thinking this is remember me, but in, um, in fall into darkness, it's like Anne's entire family is dead. 
Right. And it's like, oh, she's just as splendidly rich and attractive 18 year old living in a giant mansion all by herself. Mm-hmm. Like that just seems, I don't know, maybe that happens. It doesn't <laughs> it seems like a little um, dot, 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 question mark is my thought. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> but, How convenient um, that your whole family was murdered. <laughs> um, and she has no plans to go to college. She has no job and she doesn't need one because she's rich. It's like the, the only thing she has to do with the rest of her life is plot her own oh yeah assumed death and <laughs> uh pin it on her best friend yeah um yeah i guess another thing that i in my notes that i had put here is uh that you know like teen slasher films where people are you know like hot girls who have sex are punished for it by getting murdered and that's explicitly what happens is that there's a hot girl who has sex and or sort of at least uh mm-hmm. and gets murdered but there's absolutely zero sense of punishment for anything about Sherry and remember me. Right. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's like, there's, there's no sense that, that anything she did in life made her deserve death or there's like, there's nothing sexualized about her death, you know? And this is such a contemporary of those tropes being used to be like, Oh, she's dead and you can also jerk off to it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call these books feminist necessarily, but um, they're like, they're not diminishing in any way, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Like to their female characters. And yeah, I really appreciate that. Yeah, and I guess something that I never um, articulated earlier on is that, I I strongly remember seeing these books in the bookstore for a long time before I actually like deigned to pick one up because they do have such a like slasher trash aesthetic, which, you know, I love Um, (laughs) now. I especially love it. Um, But at the time I was sort of like, well, like I thought I was above that, you know, I was like, I don't read trash. Um, I don't know what, changed my mind. I don't know if like somebody I knew recommended, remember me to me, or I just sort of picked it up and was like, Oh, actually this sounds kind of compelling. (laughs) I know that was the first one I read. I don't know, but for whatever reason I bought it and read it and I was like blown away. I was like, this is so much better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I guess I've, I've read several of those books now for the podcast and they I guess Valley of the Dolls is the only one that didn't seem way better than I thought it was going to be. Mm. And whatever, you can go listen to that episode. I'm not going to go into all of oh, my, I, my reasoning about Valley hey, of the Dolls. You don't, you don't think I listen to the podcast? Don't listen to that you. episode. I just mean any listener <laughs> who wants oh. to know more of my right. and Sandy's thoughts about right. Valley one, of the Dolls. One can go listen to that episode. Yes, exactly. Thank you for listening. Anyway, <laughs> uh, no, I just think like Flowers in the Attic like my reaction to flowers in the attic was so much stronger and so much more positive than I was expecting. But I also think that it was a completely different object than I thought. And I think like Sandy made this analogy to like outsider art. Um, Like it, it was so strange and just so like written 
torn directly from this woman's heart, basically, you know, like it was like her creed de cour. Uh, yeah. And then this, I think, was also really good and also incredibly sincere, but was just the story of a person for whom mainstream culture of the 1980s is it's kind of makes sense to him and like he can use it to tell the story that he wants to tell and it's like kind of a fine place for him to live you know mm-hmm. like like insider art you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just i don't i i never stop re having like the realization (laughs) that you really do have to read things to know what they're like. All right. That's our episode on Christopher Pike. Thank you to Elisa Gabbert and Adam Baer for our music and to the people at Literary Hub for hosting us. If you'd like to write to us, we're at Lit Century Pod on Twitter and at litcenturypodcast at gmail.com. We're grateful for uh, all your nice ratings and reviews also. Um, Thank you for listening, everyone. Goodbye till next week.